Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Welcome to the Space Nuts podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, your host. And from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, one Fred Watson. There is only one Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> there must be another one somewhere in the universe. Though. I reckon if you did a Facebook search, you'd find millions of them. Oh, uh, yes, there, there are a few. I've done all that. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of me out there, I, yeah. I've noticed. Um, in fact, if you do a Google search on my name, you find a machinery company. There you go. Probably somebody actually doing something useful. Yeah, maybe. Or a footballer from the Sydney Swans, <laughs> retired. Um, Fred, today we've got a lot to talk about. We won't uh, mention the war or the uh, US election, uh, but we will be talking about the search for aliens. And it involves a radio telescope that's just down the road from me uh, that has um, signed up for this, uh, this search for extraterrestrials. Uh, terrestrials. Yes. Extraterrestrials. Uh, we'll also be looking at the pillars of destruction. And I did say we wouldn't mention the election. This has got nothing to do with it. Uh, this is the Carina Nebula, uh, which is what uh, nebulae are just the most amazing things when you see them photographed. And uh, this one's especially interesting. And we're going to try and get this podcast out into the ether before the 14th of November because we've got another supermoon. Uh, rising uh, in our skies and uh, we're going to try and explain why that's a supermoon and why other moons are just ordinary moons and even full moons that rise that look big are not a supermoon. I think I got that right. Um, but first, Fred, the search for extraterrestrials or just ordinary extraterrestrials would be yes, good enough. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, so yeah, this is, I think, a really interesting story because um, it, of course, links uh, ourselves, as you mentioned, the Parks Dish already, with a program that's um, been, it was kicked off last July, in fact, by Yuri Milner, who's a, 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 a an internet billionaire, um, in what's called the Breakthrough Foundation. And the Breakthrough Foundation has three projects. Uh, one is called Breakthrough Listen, which is basically radio telescopes listening for, ex, for potential signals from extraterrestrial life. There is Breakthrough Message, which is all about um, the ethics of whether we should send messages out into space. And that's a really interesting issue, you know, the ethical side of it. Yeah. And then this breakthrough Starshot, which is all about trying to send micro spacecraft towards the nearest star to our solar system, Alpha Centauri. Yes, which um, we've talked about as well. Yeah. We've talked about it before, that's right. So Breakthrough Listen uh, is a, basically a $100 million project uh, which is buying time on two of the biggest radio telescopes in the world, the Goldstone Dish in the Northern Hemisphere and uh, the Parkes Radio Dish in the Southern Hemisphere. And the idea is to have a kind of targeted search across a very wide range of wavelengths uh, so that you um, have a chance 
uh, over a fairly lengthy period of time have a chance of detecting any signals that do not have a natural origin. Now, in some ways, this has got echoes of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which sure. has been going for more than 50 years, is a very well-organized uh, and well-targeted program. But SETI always relies on uh, you know, small amounts of telescope time begged on the back of other major projects. Whereas what's happening here, uh, certainly at Parks, 25% of the telescope time at Parks over the next five years will be devoted to Breakthrough Listen. And I think that is a really interesting uh, uh, idea. Um, it, it, it may well be that we still turn up nothing because mm. it's very much a needle in a haystack search. It's not just a, a needle in a haystack of space. It's a needle in a haystack of time as well, because we don't know how long civilizations might last, how long they might be broadcasting signals for. These are all complete unknowns. Uh, but the only way to find out is to is to listen. And that's one reason why the Breakthrough Listen project has got other big names associated with it, like Stephen Hawking, uh, uh, also the Astronomer Royal, uh, Professor Sir Martin Rees. People like that are throwing their weight behind this. And one of the reasons for that is not just the potential for what we might discover, but also because that $100 million includes funding for new technology to be built on these telescopes, uh, as well as um, funding for, for scientists to work on it. So in many ways, it's a win-win situation. You might not hear from aliens, but you will improve the telescopes, you will improve the instrumentation and our way of, of searching the sky. So um, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good thing. And yet, Fred, it's probably the one thing that the bulk of humanity wants to have happen. We want to find life, intelligent life beyond this planet, because right now, as you and I have said before, the, we only have evidence of life existing on Earth. We don't have evidence of life existing anywhere else in our solar system or beyond. We have a lot of theory. We're starting to look at ice moons with potential um, uh, aquatic life or microscopic life. Um, but now I think, and you might be able to clarify this for me, now I think there's, there's starting to be a groundswell of belief that there might be more out there than, we, than we've been led to believe or, or have been game to actually consider. Um, there just seems to be a lot more people in very high places that think we really need to look for these um, these life forms, intelligent well, life forms. Well, what's changed, what's changed things over recent years, Andrew, is that we now know that planetary systems are common throughout the universe. And we mm. didn't know that 20 years ago, or 25 years ago, we didn't know that. Um, so uh, it, that has provided an impetus for this. And I think... Um, I think it is one of the things that we are most curious about in terms, you know, our species is very curious about whether there is life elsewhere. What is interesting to me is that at the moment there are no protocols around to say what we should do if we discovered that life. Um, there's no, for example, there's no kind of identified take me to your leader person. It's not the president of the United States. Uh, it is not the Secretary General of the United Nations. In fact, the United Nations thought about this back in 1977 and decided it was too hard. So there's not been any progress with any kind of protocols about how we should deal with it from a legal point of view, from a, you know, from a, a moral and ethical point of view. It's uh, still a closed book, and that's something that I find very interesting. It is interesting. The United Nations could solve it by appointing an intergalactic ambassador and I reckon he should be an Aussie because when we do make contact, 
the, the message would be as you know, straightforward as it could be, which is what Australians are. G'day, mate. Want a beer? <laughs> Done. And we'd be on the, the right footing straight away. I think you've got it there in one, Andrew. <laughs> nailed. Absolutely nailed. Look, I, I hope sometime in our lifetimes we do find evidence of intelligent life. Um, you and I have both agreed we probably will find evidence of microbial life somewhere yeah. uh, in our solar system uh, in the not-too-distant future. But to find the, the mother load, if you like, uh, would be just the greatest thing to happen in the history of this planet, let alone the Absolutely. universe. That's right. It is. It's, it's the biggest discovery that we could possibly make. So there you go. So watch this space. Yes. Well, we are watching <laughs> space. <laughs> You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, and Fred Watson. Zero G, and I feel fine. Space Nuts. And now, Fred, uh, on Space Nuts, we're going to be talking about the pillars of destruction. Um, <laughs> I really should have put some reverb behind that, but it's it's um, nothing to do with the U.S. election. It's nothing to do with the probability of nuclear war or anything like that. I think we've had our fill of that over the last hundred years. We are looking at some new observations of the Carina Nebula. So, okay, let's just unhatch this a bit. Uh, tell us about the Carina Nebula, first of all. It looks amazing. It is. It's one of the most spectacular regions of the whole southern sky. And by the way, the Carina Nebula, uh, for us here in, uh, in New South Wales, uh, passes directly overhead once a day. <laughs> so mm. the pillars of destruction are going past all the time. That's as, as the Earth rotates, of course. So um, a nebula uh, is a, a we, the, the term as we use it now is a cloud of gas and dust. Um, the, the term originally comes from the, you know, from the, the, the it's probably Greek actually, uh, word for mist. Uh, nebula is, is a mist uh, uh, because people saw misty things in the sky and um, didn't they weren't stars? They weren't they weren't um, uh, planets. So they were nebulae. That was the other thing that um, early astronomers saw, and hence gave them the name of a nebula. Um, the not modern knowledge of nebulae is that they are actually gas clouds uh, which are laced with a lot of uh, dust. I suppose in the in the you know in a similar vein to smoke. It's it's you know smoke like dust is probably the best way to to put it. Mm. Um, but that we know also that these are the birthplaces of stars. It's where stars are born. And you um, and I will remember um, from the very earliest days of the Hubble Space Telescope back in the in the early 1990s. Uh, one of the earliest images and a very dramatic image that it sent back was of uh, a region of the Eagle Nebula that had these three um, fingers of dark material, uh, which are very concentrated regions of dust in, a, in an area of, of, um, of, of dust and gas that Carina, sorry, the Eagle Nebula itself. Um, that picture was termed the pillars of creation, ah. and the reason the reason for that was that the uh, the centres, the, the sort of tops of these pillars, actually contain stars which are just coming into being. We can see them when we penetrate the dust with infrared telescopes, telescopes that are looking at the redder than red region of the spectrum. Uh, you can't see them with an ordinary optical or visible light telescope. So the pillars of creation. Uh, have become really part of our folklore in the in the world of astronomy, and that's why it's a bit of a contrast to see this 
what looks in at first sight rather similar uh, pillars of dark material against a bright nebulous background but these are being called the pillars of destruction uh, and there this is some research that's come from the european southern observatory uh, whose telescopes are down in chile they're, they're the astronomers are actually based in near Munich in Germany. Um, and it's a group from there that has analyzed this region of the Carina Nebula and worked out that, yes, these pillars that we see are actually uh, basically being destroyed because what's happening is that there is a group of young energetic stars which have recently been born in the Carina Nebula and their radiation is, is basically blasting into these uh, clouds of dust and turning them into, into pillars, sort of sweeping them away uh, and destroying them as these stars actually come into the first flush of youth. Ah, so um, they are aptly named. It wasn't just a name because there was one that said the opposite. This, they're actually, there is they are, actually destruction the, happening. It's destruction happening, at least in mm. terms of the, the structure that we see there. How do they know that? How do they? Uh, how are they? You know, inferring this from the images? Well, that's because they've used an instrument that's a bit cleverer than just taking pictures. It's something called Muse, which stands for the Multi-Unit Spectroscopic Explorer. Work that one out. Um, but what it does is, for for if you imagine a picture of. Uh, the area and, and you can go to um, actually the European Southern Observatory's website and see beautiful images of, of these pillars of destruction. But if you, if you imagine a picture of that and then say, well, for every point on that picture, we can see a spectrum, the rainbow spectrum of that point. And that, um, of course, has a barcode of information in it that's telling you what the materials are that are there. It's mostly glowing hydrogen, but there's other things as well. Um, how fast it's moving, that's the key thing, how it's moving through space. And when you combine all this information, you can actually analyze that, yes, these pillars are being blown away, basically, by the energy of the stars nearby. So it is uh, aptly named, uh, and it's a very dramatic region of the sky. And as I said, it goes over our heads once a day. Oh, wow. <laughs> During the day or during the night? Uh, it depends on the time of year. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so if you know what you're looking for, you'd see it? Uh, you would, actually. The, the uh, Carina Nebula is one of the ones visible to the naked eye. It's actually best visible um, in, in our wintertime, in fact. Mm. Oh, well, we'll have to wait a while. Um, yeah. And how far away is it? Just as a uh, it is, I can't remember actually. It's a, a you know, it's of the order of a thousand light years thereabouts, something like that. That's pulled off, pulled out of my memory. But it's that kind of distance. It's yeah. a relatively, uh, relatively close in in cosmic terms. All right, well, something to look out for, and, and yeah, fascinating photography. Uh, astrophotography is is one of the most amazing things you can you can achieve. Uh, and the results are certainly spectacular, and this is this is right up there. Indeed, it is. Mm. Yeah, uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now on Space Nuts, Fred, we're going to look at the extra supermoon. Now, supermoons are not the same as full moons, although they look the same, and we wouldn't know the difference because we're all basically being tricked by our brains a lot of the time, which you're going to explain. But there's been a supermoon already on the 16th of October. As I said, we're going to try and get this podcast out early enough to um, get the information out there before the 14th of November for the next supermoon. But if we miss that one, there's another one on the 14th of December. Fred, what's a supermoon? Uh, okay. In, in a nutshell, it is when the full moon coincides 
with the moon being very close to the nearest point to the Earth in its orbit. So it is slightly bigger. So um, it, it, it's actually the, the term supermoon, in fact, is not an astronomical one. It's, an, uh, it's one that the astrologers use. Uh, we would call it a perigee syzygy. Uh, and that means <laughs> that means the word perigee means when thing, something's closest to the Earth. Syzygy is a word that means things are in a straight line. Uh, and so you've got this situation where the sun, um, the uh, Earth and the moon are in a straight line and the, the moon is being illuminated by the sun. But it coincides with the nearest point of the moon to the Earth in its monthly orbit. Um, it's a, not that rare a phenomenon. There are it's just about one in every 14 full moons is a supermoon. It's somewhere near that nearest point. But the reason why the one in November certainly is being called an extra supermoon or maybe even a super duper moon uh, <laughs> is because uh, it's very close indeed. The, the coincidence is very close. The full moon occurs pretty well at the same time as the point at which it's at perigee. It's actually within two hours of the perigee point. And that hasn't occurred since, wait for it, 1948. Um, that was the last time that occurred. The next time it will occur uh, will be on the 25th of November, 2034. Put that one in your diaries. Already so, etched. <laughs> already etched in, yeah. So uh, there'll be a supermoon, uh, as I said, the 14th, and also a month later on, December the 14th, there's another one, but it won't be the extra supermoon that we've, we, we're celebrating in November. Right. Um, the really interesting aspect of this, though, is that uh, whenever the moon rises when it's full, it always looks big. Uh, it looks um, like a supermoon every time. And the reason for that is that no matter... Where the you know where the moon is in its orbit, whether it's at its furthest point or its nearest point, when it's low on the horizon, our brains trick us into thinking that it looks much bigger than it is when it's high in the sky. In fact, psychologists uh, have done experiments that suggest that the moon looks two and a half to three times bigger when it's on the horizon uh, than it does when it's high in the sky. It's a well-established fact, mm. uh, not that straightforward to understand, but. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, yes, the moon looks big because of refraction in the atmosphere or things like that. It's well, that's what I thought. Uh, <laughs> it's not to do with that. Actually, refraction in the atmosphere, sometimes if you see the moon rising over the ocean and you see it very, very low down, it often looks slightly squashed. It's um, slightly elliptical. It's mm. uh, um, uh, squashed in a vertical direction. That's actually atmospheric refraction that does that. And that, it's ha that happens with suns at sunset too. The sun does it? the same thing. Yeah, That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and or just the one sun. I mean, yes, yes. I, I've got three, and they all need squashing. But uh, yes, I, I know you, you live in a, a, a quite different solar system from most of us. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do live with a heavenly body, though. There you go. Hmm. The, uh, the, 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 yeah, any, uh, so the moon or the sun, when they're very close to the horizon, they do look squashed, which means that they actually look smaller. Uh, they're, not, um, they're not magnified, as people think. So the phenomenon of the moon looking bigger when it's on the horizon is uh, an entirely psychological one. It, it rejoices in the name of the moon illusion. Uh, and it's been, I've seen conference proceedings where people have spent weeks talking about this sort of thing. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a, book published with everybody's psychological deliberations in it. So you're basically telling me people have spent hours, weeks, months and perhaps years studying something that doesn't exist. Um, something that does exist but only in our own heads. And, of yeah. course, a psychologist will tell you that that... That's pretty that cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Oh, dear. Yeah, it is fascinating, though. Uh, but uh, in a nutshell, the supermoon will be a real larger moon than we normally yeah. see, but That's we right. won't really notice the difference because for years, for our entire lives, we've been tricked by a psychological phenomenon that makes us think that a full moon on the horizon is a supermoon anyway. There you go. You've got it in one. See, you, you should be doing this show, not me. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a little bit out there. It, it, it yeah, at least it says a lot about the human mind, doesn't it? It does. Mm. So if you get a chance, have a look for the full moon on rising on the evening of November 14th uh, and, and December 14th. And, and that'll be everywhere? It won't matter where you are on the planet? No, that's right. It's everywhere on the planet. Yeah. Fantastic. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll try and squeeze this out before the 14th so people know it's coming and not hear about it afterwards. But yeah. if, if we miss it, it's uh, back again on the 14th of December. Not quite as large, but you probably wouldn't know the difference unless you're an astronomer, Fred. That's right. Or a psychologist. <laughs> mm. Fred, as always, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Andrew, and um, put those, all those dates in your diary. Yes, I will. I, I'm looking forward to 2028 when we're having our full uh, solar eclipse, which is going to yeah. completely encase my city. But that's another story. We'll talk about that when the time comes. Right. <laughs> uh, sure. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Send us your notes, your messages, your questions, your ideas. Uh, maybe there's something you'd like us to talk about. We'd certainly love to hear from you in that regard. Uh, and I'll also remind you uh, that Stu Stuart Gary, another member of this podcast company, Stable, uh, provides a, a weekly forward, uh, podcast called Space Time. Very popular, huge on ABC Radio in Australia when it was on there. It's now part of our stable. So listen out for Stuart Gary. So thank you again. Until next week, you've been listening to Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.